Welcome to episode 78 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and paper making masterclasses here in the studio, and I teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Paul Jackson, a professional paper artist, paper engineer, writer, and teacher since 1983, who specializes in origami and the folded arts. Jackson has written more than 40 books, the first of which were origami books for adults and children, and his more recent books have been about the application of folding techniques in design, a subject he has taught in more than 80 universities and colleges in 13 countries. He teaches design students of many disciplines, including fashion, architecture, ceramics, jewelry, product design, and textiles. Jackson was born in England and moved to Israel when he married the Israeli origami artist and educator Miri Golan, founder of the Israeli Origami Center. Miri and Paul founded the Folding Together Project and the Origametria Program of using origami to teach geometry. In 2018, this program was accepted by the Israeli Ministry of Education into the National Mathematics Curriculum and is studied weekly by 30,000 children of primary school age. Enjoy our conversation. Paul Jackson, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you, Helen. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to learning about your life with paper. I know quite a bit from all of your publications and just seeing you around on Facebook and other places, but it's always so good to chat with the person. So tell me your first memory of paper. First memory of paper. Ooh. Um, yeah, there's a story. Um, I think I was about six, maybe mm-hmm. seven, maybe five, but about six and my mom used to clean houses and in the school holidays I couldn't stay at home I had to go with her so she used to clean a big house um, and I used to go with her and this house had a bathroom with a circular window now I'd never seen circular windows before Uh which was amazing you know and also this was stained glass so you couldn't see in Um, And I used to go into this bathroom and close the lavatory lid and just perch there, looking at this amazing display of light. It was like a kaleidoscope or a rainbow coming into the room. It was quite extraordinary. I mean, I can remember it now. Right. And, you know, sitting there, what do you do? Well, (laughs) back in the 60s, uh, not sure you have it now, but back then, there were boxes of individual sheets of toilet tissue, toilet paper. So I used to kind of take them out of the box and just play with them. Uh I didn't really know what origami was. I knew one or two things as all the kids did, but, you know, not really that you could create. And suddenly looking at all these colored lights, I made this yacht with two sails. Wow, wow, look at, wow, wow, wow. Uh 
And it was just an extraordinary kind of experience to realize you could make something with paper. And there I was in this extraordinary magical kind of rainbow kaleidoscope, you know, whatever, having milky coffee in the middle of the morning. That was a luxury. Um, and that really made a deep impression on me. It was one of those experiences. I've asked my mum about it and she uh -huh. doesn't remember it. You know, what, there was a circular window in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, with coloured glass. Yeah, oh, I don't remember that, love. Um, so, <laughs> but I do. I remember. So, oh, yeah. strange kind of few minutes really made a deep impression. So from that moment, I was always making these yachts and anything paper kind of grabbed my interest. So that's the first memory. Uh-huh. And where did you grow up? Um, I'm from Yorkshire in the north of England. Um, my family okay. for generations worked in the textile industry. Uh, my mum and dad both left school when they were 14. You know, very smart people, but no kind of opportunities in life. Uh -huh. um, I was the first generation to go to university. You know, I kind of escaped that background. Uh-huh. And did your parents encourage that? My parents oh. were very smart. They didn't say anything. You know, okay. some parents, the kind of, right. what we call them helicopter parents, mm -hmm. you know, hovering mm -hmm. over their offspring. Mm -hmm. They were never like that. They just mm -hmm. left me to do what interested me. Um, but they were never discouraging. And it was okay. never a house with money. So I didn't ask for things and get it. I just made do as we all did. Yeah. So I guess paper was something I could work with and make things from. You know, I remember cutting up old you know, shoe boxes and things like that, which kids don't really do these days. But back then, it's what we used to do. Oh, um, yeah. So, yes, it wasn't a kind of privileged background at all. But um, they were very good because they didn't say, what are you doing that for? Can't you do something? You know, they just left me to do it. Right, right. Yeah. And so um, when did you discover origami for real? I'm, I'm imagining that's the first... Uh, actual yeah. paper art form you discovered, yeah. For real, um, there was a series, um, I don't know if anybody listening to this will remember, there was a TV series that Robert Harbin made. Robert Harbin was the man who introduced origami to Britain in the 1960s okay. with a series of books. In the late 60s, he made a series of origami programs, short origami programs for British TV, for Yorkshire TV, coincidentally. Um, and I remember watching those and I never used to fold along. I could always remember, which nobody else could, which was a bit odd, you know. <laughs> you mean you fired. could make it afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you couldn't yeah, make it yeah. right with them, but you did it no, after you remembered all no, this. I just you didn't, I guess you I just watched. Watch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you do that and you do, yeah, that goes inside, you turn it. Okay, okay. And then yeah. I would make it uh -huh. and nobody could understand and everybody was impressed. So at that age, you know, when you do something really good, then when adults take notice and your friends think you're pretty cool, then you do more of it. Right. Um, so I went to a kind of grammar school, the old grammar school system in the UK, and had an academic education. And there were one or two books in the library and also in Lancaster, where we lived at the time, in the public library, there were two or three origami books by Sam Randlett and by Kasahara, people like that. So, uh, so, uh, so I had those books on permanent loan. Uh -huh. uh, I just, just loved these books. Um, 
Then later, I was aware that there was something called the British Origami Society. What's that? Which was just an address in the back of a Robert Harbin book. Mm-hmm. So I wrote. Um, and I joined when I was 19, by which time I'd been kind of creating a little bit. And, you know, and by that time, I was at art school. That was my passion in my teens. I was going to go to art school. And that's what I did. So uh-huh. at 19, I left. Um, school when I was 18 so at 19 I went to art school and I joined the BOS at the same time okay wow and um, how did you know to go to art school were other friends going to art school or I'm just no 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 Um, uh, the grammar school system is a very academic right kind of priming you for university or Mm -hmm to be a manager in the insurance company or something. Right. But I never wanted to go down that route. I always wanted from the age of 13 or 14 to be an artist. I cannot explain why. Mm-hmm. Other mm-hmm. than I used to open books that I would borrow from Lancaster Library. Look at all these extraordinary kind of photographs of paintings and sculpture and mm-hmm. performance art and stuff that was going on and just think, I have to do this. This is... This is me. I'm home. This is yeah, where yeah. I want to be. Right. I couldn't tell you why. My mum and dad are not artistic. There's nobody in my family artistic. Art was a bit of a sissy subject at the grammar school. Um, but, you know, this is what I was going to be. I was going to be an artist. And I cannot put it any more than that. I didn't know what an artist was. I didn't know how to make a living as an artist when I was in my teens. I just knew that I had to do what was in these books. So yeah, I did. <laughs> that's a real, um, that's wonderful to know, uh, yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. a lot of people struggle their whole lives and never find that. Yeah. Yeah, my so, son's yeah. that. Yes, he's 18 and leaving school. He's no idea what he wants to do. And I can't help him, you know. Right, right. So I'm a bit of a freak in that sense that I had a very clear idea from an early age. This is what I was going to do. And I did. <laughs> yeah. So how did that evolve in uh, the university? Well, um, I went to three art schools. First year was just a kind of introductory year. We used to call them foundation courses. Mm-hmm. where you do all kinds of drawing and painting and printmaking and woodwork and metalwork and graphics projects and fashion projects. You just do all kinds of things. Right. And after about six months of that, you kind of realize that, yeah, I really like jewelry or I like fashion or industrial design. And if you don't like any of those, you do fine art. <laughs> if it doesn't look like anything, that means you're an artist, you know. Um, so, uh, so I went from there um, to a college in Coventry in the middle of England, which at the time was coming out of a kind of conceptual phase. Um, if anybody knows art back in the 70s, it was quite a conceptual time, especially in Europe. So there were all these students with typewriters making concepts that they were typing. Uh-huh. And if you were a painter expressing yourself, this was very bourgeois you know, and rather frowned upon. And there was this very interesting debate between the kind of conceptual students and also the teachers and the more expressive, more traditional kind of, you know, art students, the more Mm -hmm. expressive and, you know, I don't know why I have to do it, but I have, you know, kind of person. 
It was a very interesting debate. And there were yeah. some very good students there, very good teachers, a wealthy college. Anything you wanted to do was free from photography to, I think it was the second art school in the world to have video when video oh. was black and white and really yeah. So I was one of the early video artists, you know, playing with video. And from there, um, my origami was still a hobby. You know, it mm -hmm. was not studio work. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, I was very lucky. I was given a postgraduate place. Now, all over the world, postgraduate places, MA places in art are really to a penny because it's how the colleges make money, you know. But right. back then, they were rare. It was very difficult to get an MA place. And that was the highest level you could study art to. Mm -hmm. And I was incredibly lucky to get a place at the Slade School, which is part of University, um, it's part of the University of London. And back then, and probably still now, if I can say this, it's the best art school in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, other places like the Royal College of Art and Parsons, they're really design schools with a, right. you know, a few fine art courses, you know, tagged on. But the Slade was a pure art college and so many famous artists had been through. And I was accepted into this, well, it's become quite a famous department, the Experimental Media Department, which had the first, first computer in an art school, this huge wardrobe thing. And, and all these kind of misfits who were doing performance and video and feminist art and you know, weird stuff that you couldn't call painting, sculpture or printmaking, which were the other courses. So it kind of mopped up all these odd people like me. You know, I was making kinetic sculptures and okay. doing sound performances and things like that. Um, um, so, so I was accepted to this two-year course and, and it was a kind of love-hate in a way because I, you know, this boy from the north going to London, you know, uh, what is this place? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's an extraordinary kind of culture shock. And the Slade is very middle class. All these traditional, you know, it's a kind of, you know, there were princesses who were studying there. I think Stanley Kubrick's daughter was there. Uh -huh. you know, all these kind of wow kind of people. And I was this kind of mill boy from the north, you know, didn't quite fit in. Um, so it became known. Um, it's a story I've told many times, you might yeah. have heard it. It became known to my professor, who I won't name, that, that my hobby was origami. And by this time, I'd written a few little booklets for the BOS. My name, you know, you know I was a minor creative origami artist doing simple stuff when everybody else was doing complicated stuff mm -hmm. or trying to. But I was a minor name in origami. Um, and some of my work had been published and so on. So I was into the origami, but it was my hobby. So I told this to my professor and he said, oh, what is it? What's this origami? Uh, uh, so I know the name, but I don't really know what it is. Bring it into the art school. Bring in what you make. So very proudly, I took this kind of cardboard box of my elephant and my flower <laughs> and dragon, you know, all these brightly colored, you know, origami paper models into the Slade Art School, you know, right. and put them on the table in front of my professor. And he looked at them and he knocked them on the floor. Uh -huh. Get them out. This is not art. Why are you wasting your time doing this? 
well, he put it stronger than that, but you know. Uh-huh. Um, oh, wow, oh, wow, wow. Oh, you know, you know, uh, uh, but I was in shock that, wow. that this most liberal of kind of environments and art schools are the most liberal environments in the world, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, that that this this kind of innocuous, inoffensive, you know, paper folding was considered forbidden. Mm-hmm. Whereas there were people, and I was one of them, doing these physically extreme performances where you would deliberately hurt yourself, or you know, there was a student who. Um, uh, I mean, it was one of the women students spent her period, you know, dribbling, bro- dribbling <laughs> blood onto a canvas, you right, know, in the name right. of art. And this was all fine. Everybody accepted this. But here was this paper folding. So from that moment, from that instant, I was a paper folding artist mm-hmm. because I could see there was a door to push open. Right, right. But I didn't need to take all my clothes off and do something extreme you know, in the name of art, to be edgy, which uh-huh. we all, you know, wanted to be. I didn't need to be edgy, you know, by doing that. I was edgy by folding paper. Uh-huh. So that that was the meeting that turned my head. And so I finished the course, you know, I graduated, post-graduated, and kind of fell out into the world. Um, but did uh, you do... Did you do anything with paper through the course or did you? Not really. I used no. to make a few things. Um, there was paper music that became a bit of a thing. It was one of my performances where um, I became interested in alternative music. Mm-hmm. Um, people like John Cage and uh, uh, people like that. Yeah. Um, um, and the kind of interface between music and sound and performance. The kind of Merce Cunningham, you know, Jasper Johns, you know, John Cage kind of thing. Right. Um, and I saw you have something just for listeners. There's something on your website about this. Yes. Yeah. People are interested. Yeah. Um, in fact, there is a little website I made about 15 years ago, papersonics.com. Papersonics.com. Mm-hmm. So, yes, so I began to do these paper performances um, where, uh, uh, so not making paper violins or anything, but just the sounds yeah. of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and this became quite a well-known performance piece. I did it many times around London at festivals and sometimes really big performances, sometimes really small in various guises. Mm-hmm. So that was maybe the only time. But I didn't really understand you know, I was very blocked because mm-hmm. I'd spent years making models. How do you make an elephant? How do you make a giraffe? How do you make a flower? You know, model making. Right. And right. I didn't really think it was art. And in a sense, my professor was right. You know, these, right. these little models were not art. Or if they were art, it was pretty poor art. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so I decided, well, you know, what is my place in this? Nobody was making a living doing nobody so I had nobody to follow nobody to look to and I just kind of belly flopped you know out into the world and thinking well you know here I am and nobody was interested so for two years I was hello it's me hello do you have any work hello what do you do well I fold paper no come on (laughs) where did you go the slate no come on um but eventually 
you know, if you keep showing up, yeah, you keep knocking on the doors, they open. Yeah. <clears throat> and after about two years of, we call it living on the dole, you know, government money, mm -hmm. uh, then things began to happen. And, you know, I'm still here <laughs> 38 <laughs> years later, um, you know, having made a living for 38 years. Just tell me about that living on the dole. How do you qualify for government money? Was that specifically to do art or no. just? No, it was just okay. that I didn't have a job. Okay. Uh, okay. So the system was and is in right. England. Um, I guess in many countries, if you don't have a job, you qualify for an amount of um, money. You know, per right. Week. Right. And at that time, this is the early 80s. This is um, Thatcher's Britain. There were riots in some of the suburbs in London. Uh, the British miners were on strike because they were losing all their jobs. It was a very difficult time in England. You know, not a fun time to be finding a job. And then during the 80s, the, uh, the economy picked up and, and it became quite an affluent you know, decade. Um, so I did kind of quite well out of it, I think. Um, so I was just there at the right time. You know, there's nobody else thinking to make a living. So I began to pick up the work. And what kind of work was that? Well, it was in three parts. Um, um, so one part was I began writing books by a very odd coincidence. I met an editor of a children's publisher and they just published a paper aeroplane book ah, uh -huh. um, from Australia and it had sold well. So I met this lady, complete coincidence, absolute weird coincidence. And she said, oh, you do origami. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I know that book, I said, I've got it. Mm -hmm. So she said, do you have any other ideas for books for children? Yes. <laughs> so I went to her with a shoebox. Everything evolves, you know, everything revolves around shoeboxes in my early life. <laughs> I went to her with a shoebox of little action models, clapping birds, jumping frogs, you know. Um, oh, fantastic. Oh, I love these. I love these. And I walked out with a contract. Wow. And uh, these, these, these were your own designs, correct? Yeah, yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah a few uh -huh. were traditional, okay. uh, but not well known. Yeah. Anyway, there were not many books around in those right. days. Very, very, very few origami books. When an origami book was published in England, it was a big event. Now they're every week. But then it was <laughs> you know, one a year if you were lucky. Yeah. So to have a book out was, you know, people didn't know models. Um, so, so I had this book and it became a bestseller. Mm -hmm. It made me, you know, quite a bit of money. Um, That's which great. was amazing. So you got an advance and then royalties? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And also I started doing book fairs and book signings in the middle of London. Um, okay. And doing appearances on children's TV, much to my friend's amusement. You know. Okay, so uh, you, you were able to sell quite a bit of books yourself. You would take books to all of those events? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. take books around. And, right, right. Yeah, but it wasn't me selling. It was the publisher. You know, it's right. their job to sell the books. I'm just the kind yeah. of mouthpiece, the attraction. Right, right. right. Get the author there, you know, making a few models, giving them away, mm -hmm. talking to people, you know, making mm -hmm. chaos mm -hmm. in the shop, you know, throwing airplanes around or something. Um, so that was what I did. And that was quite nice. But, but I realized I didn't really want to be a child entertainer. This was not me. Right. So that was one thing. Right. Uh, the, uh, the second was I started to pick up teaching in design schools. 
mean, as soon as I said to anybody I was at the Slade, oh, really? Oh, come and do some teaching. It's amazing okay. how it opened doors. Uh -huh. um, so I go and do some teaching, and I think, you know, why am I teaching these fashion students at St. Martin's, you know, famous course? Why am I teaching these students to make origami elephants? This is silly. <laughs> because at the time I was still thinking models. Right. And I began to realize that it wasn't the product I should be teaching, it was the technique. Right. You know, the method. Yeah. So that's when all the pennies dropped, you know, that, that I began to understand that the design teaching should not be me teaching origami, it should be me teaching the techniques of folding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I changed all my teaching around. Mm -hmm. And it became common that I would go into a design school, uh, not really an art school, a design school into fashion or jewelry or um, graphic design or something. Yeah. Do a workshop. And somebody would put the head round the door from another department and see all this messy paper being folded, thinking, wow, this looks amazing. Come and do it for us. So I was like a disease, you know, going through the <laughs> colleges. Um, so I picked up a lot of teaching in all kinds of design courses. I had no idea what fashion students did. Right. Or, you know, what did jewellery students study? I had no idea. So I'd just turn up and learn by uh -huh. teaching uh -huh. paper folding. Um, so for a couple of years, I did that. And then it had its own momentum. People knew me. You know, right. I get asked to go back and I do this kind of peripatetic teaching going here, there and everywhere for a few days all around London. There were lots of design, um, lots of design schools, colleges around London from the Royal College down to the local borough colleges and also going around England as well. So I, you know, made a kind of reasonable living as a visiting lecturer. I see. And the third thing I did was. Um, sort of consultancy work. Um, in the early 80s, the Royal Academy had, a, <clears throat> had an exhibition, well, actually two exhibitions, called the Great Japan Exhibition, which was this exhibition of treasures in private collections in Japan that even the Japanese hadn't seen. Oh. And somehow they got all these pieces to London. And it became the talk of London. So all this traditional Japanese, whatever it was, kimonos and screens and netsuke and all kinds of things became the talk of London. And there were TV programs and documentaries about Japan and Japanese art. And all the advertising people took notice. Now, this was also the time when fax machines became mm -hmm. the new thing. Right. <laughs> we remember fax machines. <laughs> How do we advertise fax machines? Paper, paper. Japan, origami. Oh, right. Who do we know who does origami? Find somebody, find somebody. So they found me. Uh -huh. So I do all this kind of model making for the magazine adverts and billboards and maybe turn up at a trade exhibition and do some folding. And that was also very well paid. Oh, I bet. So it yeah. was like a kind of gallery, you know, that there'd be a magazine for the Sunday Times or something. So right. I'd go to the shop on a Sunday, buy the Sunday Times, open the magazine. And there was a double page spread of something I'd folded. You know, wow, that was a real rush. You know? Yeah, yeah. Not art, not really art. Right. But wow, that was my gallery. Yeah. Um, so 
so, uh, so by writing, by teaching, and by doing commercial work, I made a living. And it's kind of been the same ever since. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, and I want to ask you about your one-sheet folds, because I seems to me like those are some early work, and I thought maybe they had a conceptual bent. And yeah. is, it, is it kind of, was that some yeah. of your first artwork? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, although it didn't start out as artwork. It, or one um, fold. It started as a question from one of my students. Okay. Because I do workshops uh, where they were folding, and we'd make four or five folds before we actually looked at what we had. Mm-hmm. And one of the students said to me, well, okay, but what can you do with one fold? Mm-hmm. So I kind of laughed at her. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you can make a cheese sandwich. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so then I thought, well, actually, what can you do? Nobody has ever looked at this because right. it's boring, uh-huh. isn't it? And then I started to look and realized actually what you could do with one fold was very rich and very interesting. Uh-huh. And it gave a whole vocabulary of form that was not possible with traditional origami techniques. Um, And by minimizing the fold from a full diagonal to just half a diagonal, or even just what I call a break, just by snapping the paper at a point, you can make all kinds of forms. And if you wet folded these with thick watercolor paper and some water, they would dry rigid, I mean, to these forms Mm -hmm. that would open if they were in some other paper. So they became sculptures. Mm-hmm. And this seemed to be in opposition to a lot of you know, origami. Origami is a sequence. Yeah. This and then that and then that and then that. But this one fold was not a sequence. It was an event. It was mm-hmm. a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there was kind of geometry involved when you were doing origami. Halves, quarters. There was right. no geometry in this. There was no pattern. You could put a fold where you wanted. There was no rule. Mm-hmm. So that seemed different as well. And also, the, how do you judge these? I mean, if you do origami, oh, yes, it looks like an elephant. Therefore, it's a good model, right? Yes, it looks like a flower. Well, it's an elephant that only got three legs. Can't you design one with four legs? You know, um, like that's a better mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. but this one fold was how do you judge it so then it wasn't kind of model making it became something more in a fine art tradition right so i'd kind of come back to what my professor was saying about this yeah. to get it out that i'd found a way to create something that had a context of being sculpture fine art rather than you know, model making, for want of a better term, which origami was and still is, I think. Um, so that's how it evolved. I mean, it started with this kind of question from my students, mm-hmm. but I became very interested in it because I could see that, that this wasn't just a new technique, it was a different philosophy. And what was interesting was that my origami friends thought I'd just lost it. You know, <laughs> this was weird, what the so-and-so are we looking at how how can we judge it but my art friends were really interested you know they were not so interested in the elephants and the flowers right right again elephants and flowers it's just a 
book, you know, to talk about a model. But uh, yeah, they were not interested in that. But the one fold they were interested in. Um, but the interesting thing there is that I did a one fold workshop at the BOS convention. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's try it. Let's just see what happens when I do this. Slowing everybody down, feeling the fold, right. looking at the way the light goes over the curve rather than fold, 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 fold. So you're working in harmony with the paper. You're not dominating it. All these things that are important in one fold. So I did this thinking, well, it's already been pilloried. You know, they're going to hate it, but I'll have a go. It was quite amazing. We were sat in this lovely room around a table with sunlight coming in. It was a lovely room, lovely light. And people began to do this. And there were two people in that room began to cry. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I was a bit worried. You know, are you all right? Said, oh, it's so beautiful. I've never thought of paper. It's so beautiful. Oh. I've never thought of paper this way before. Uh -huh. I've made models, it's so beautiful. The light, look at the light and the shadow. It was actually quite a, you know, quite a revelation to me. I mean, I knew yeah. this. That's right. what I, you know, I understood that. But that origami people had a way into this, I thought was interesting. Um, so I've done it a few times, you know, here and there since then. Um, now, of course, it's just a bit old fashioned. Everybody knows it. But 30 years ago, 35 years ago, this was you know, well, it was a revolution. Um, yeah. But it did get people, not everybody, but it did, you know, get people. Yeah, I'm. it's making me think about, uh, I went to college, I think I'm about 10 years younger than you. I went to a small college in Tennessee here in the States and um, was very traditional, painting, drawing, very small, so not, not a lot. I studied art, but my... If I had known, I probably could have done anything, but I didn't know much. So I spent my junior year in Germany and discovered um, the work of uh, Masahiro Ch Chatani, the origami architecture. Yeah. And I yeah. went back and did my senior project with that. And I think everybody just thought I was nuts because I was doing something <laughs> so different. But yeah, that was my introduction to paper. Yeah, yeah. So. Yes, I sympathize with that. Yes, I understand that completely. Yeah. 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 So, um, okay. So now you've written so many books. Did you keep writing origami books for that publisher? And then how did you get into the design publications? Um, yeah, my publishing history is in three parts. Uh -huh. uh, the first part uh, uh, um, are these children's books. I wrote about six. Okay. But they're all out of print. Maybe yeah. other books or somebody you can find them, but um, they're all kind of long gone. Um, and they did okay. They did quite well. Mm -hmm. And then um, I did an exhibition for the BOS in Covent Garden in the middle of London. I curated it. I organised it. There was some some anniversary of the BOS. I forget. Okay. So and this again is the British Origami Society, right? Um, yes. Yes, yeah. thank you. yes. So yeah, for the British Origami Society, I organised this exhibition. And um, and it was a commercial gallery. We had a sponsor from a paper company who paid. Uh -huh. the, um, <coughs> excuse me for the gallery. Um, the lady who managed it, her brother worked for what were called then, maybe they still are, a craft and leisure publisher. 
and she told him about this origami exhibition and you know he came down to look at it and I didn't know this and I got a phone call later hello my name is um, such and such from such and such a publisher would you like to write a book about paper paper crafts oh yes please now this was an adult publisher mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and they made color books with photographs in <laughs> um, hardback and at that time there was really only one color hardback origami book in English by a man called Eric Kenaway uh -huh. who's a friend of mine um, actually yeah. a very good book but um, that was the only one really so so he was interested because it was a different market a different idea for a book so I found a friend of mine who could do things I couldn't do things like paper flowers you know and asked her to write half the book so we wrote it together um and that did quite well and this yeah. is i think this is i have this book um yeah, what's Frank, the name of it what's it's called origami and paper craft yeah mm -hmm. um so it's myself and vivian frank um right. who is the cousin of florence tempko anybody uh, who knows their origami yeah. will know florence tempko's name mm -hmm. she died years ago but yeah they were cousins you know online. okay yeah um, strange anyway um so uh, so i wrote that book and on the back of that you know being successful i pitched other ideas for origami books to them mm -hmm. and they said yes 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 because mm -hmm. they kept selling right and also their parent company came to me to ask if i would write an origami and papercraft encyclopedia which uh, I did. yeah um, about 1990-91, which became, I think, the first serious, you know, origami encyclopedia, uh, um, sort of papercraft encyclopedia. They liked the word origami. Origami sold books. Right. So they put, you know, origami and papercraft. It's in, in the title of my new book, too. Yeah. <laughs> Do they still like yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it sold books. You know, what yeah. is papercraft? Origami, we know what that is. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, so they put it, it's only 10% of the book, you know, 5% right. of the book. Yeah, the yeah. Title. Uh -huh. um, and that did well. Um, so I had this second period of writing colour hardback craft books, mm -hmm. but also a few pop-up books and paper sculpture books. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 2000, I was getting a bit bored doing this. Mm -hmm. And um there were lots of other people writing books and it just seemed to kind of lose its direction, the origami publishing market. Right. Just lots of samey books and I wasn't so interested. Right. Um, so, so at that time I got married. You know, finally somebody wanted to marry me, you know, crazy woman. So I met this um, tiny Israeli lady, Miri, Miri Golan. Um, uh -huh. And six months later we were married she was an origami artist. Oh, wait, and where did you meet her? Through origami. At an origami convention. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so my life completely changed. You know, I moved to Tel Aviv. What am I doing here? What's happening? You know. Right. Um, but she had the origami center that she'd established. And so there was a community here and there mm -hmm. was work to do. And I got a job in a design college. You know, just walked you know, straight into a nice job, which was very lucky. Wow. I've had yeah. a lucky life. Um, and I just forgot about publishing. You know, wasn't uh -huh. interested. You uh -huh. know, because this market had gone a bit soft and I 
didn't really want to do more origami books the same. And then about 2008, 2009, uh, suddenly had a letter from a publisher in England saying, hello, we've met your friend, um, somebody, somebody. We want to do a book on packaging. Um, are you interested? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. But I am interested to write a book called Folding Techniques for Designers. What's that, they say. So I wrote mm-hmm. a synopsis, sent a few photographs, and a week later I had a contract for Folding Techniques for Designers, which uh-huh. became, I think, the book I'm best known for. Um, right. So it's still in print. In fact, next year there'll be a second edition. I'm working on it at the moment. And okay. it's kept selling for that decade, which is amazing. Yeah. And so that book became a kind of, well, it's a set text in many design schools and many you know, architectural practices, many, you know, you know, many designers have libraries and this is on their shelf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel very proud of that. The book I'm very kind of happy with and proud of. It was the right book at the right time, written, I think, by the right person, because it's really a book of my teaching. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's really interesting how you have, um, yeah, integrated into the design world uh, because there's book arts, there's paper arts, there's origami, but not that many people working with paper really have gone into design. And that's wonderful because, yeah, there's so many people that design with paper first and then turn it into something else or you're just, yeah, helping open their minds. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, this is really my teaching. Maybe I didn't yeah. make it clear before. Yeah, yeah. But yes, we start in paper. Right. Because paper is cheap. You can mm-hmm. use copy paper, mm-hmm. A4, 8.5 by 11, whatever. Just, you know, piles of the stuff. It's cheap. Nobody's scared of it. Nobody's thinking, oh, that's $20, or I don't want to destroy right. that. They right. just use it freely. And out of that, if you're a fashion student, a jewellery student, industrial design, ceramics, whatever your specialism, then you can pull something out of the paper to take it into your specialism in fabric, in metal, in casting, in moulding, in vacuum forming, 3D printing, laser cutting, whatever, whatever, whatever. So this is the teaching that I do. It starts in paper and usually finishes with another material. But I don't do that. The students do. Right. And yeah, I want to make the leap from you were talking earlier about you didn't know anything about fashion. You didn't know anything when you were teaching these one of workshops in England. But now at Shankar College, it sounds like you're a regular and um, working with all of these students in different departments. Tell me a little more about. Yeah, um, I've worked in nearly every department in the college. Um, So in the past few years, to be honest, there have been cuts and they've reorganised themselves. I think it's a common story in art education, design education. So I don't have the hours I used to have, Um, but they don't want to get rid of me. They recognise that that Mm -hmm. that I do. Well, my courses are some of the most popular in the college. Um, So... um, Yes, I teach uh, fashion, um, interior design, environmental design, jewellery, um, uh, and often the students from the industrial design department. Hello, my friend in fashion, 
says you can help me with this project, da, da, da. Mm -hmm. So I kind of go through all the college. I know, you know, all the departments. Um, so yes, I've been there since 2001, um, teaching um, some years, a lot of work, other years, not so much. Um, but yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a kind of familiar face there. And my work has been a kind of signature style of the college. So yeah, very happy for that. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here and I want to tell you about the Paper Year, my online membership program. It's an annual subscription club, kind of like a year-long online class, featuring a new paper project every month. Get inspired with video and written project instructions designed to spark ideas that keep you creating for the rest of the month. Explore creative paper techniques, including origami, pop-ups, paper weaving, book arts, paper cutting, and more. And join our growing community of paper lovers online to learn and share in a warm, encouraging, supportive, creative community. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com to find out more and hold your spot. Registration opens four times a year. Right. And so can you just give me like an, a brief overview of what you teach? I'm thinking of like Buckminster Fuller and the pictures we see of these models that he taught at the Bauhaus. You must have a, some, some uh, repertoire that you do. Yeah, yes, I know those photos and also the older ones um, taken in the 1920s uh, uh, back in Germany. Germany, um, yeah. Because I was teaching that kind of stuff and then suddenly saw these photographs. And what, what are you doing this at the bar house? Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that. Right. <laughs> so, so it was quite odd how we got to the same point, you know, them and me, mm -hmm. you know, separately. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I teach... Well, usually I teach for a semester, three hours per week. Okay. And what I do, I divide the semester into two parts. The first third are workshops. So at nine o'clock or whatever the time is, the students come into the room, they sit down, they shut up, and for three hours we fold paper. So one week it can be the accordion pleats, the next week it's one fold, the next week it's something else, the next mm -hmm. week it's so we go through all these techniques that seem to be relevant to whatever they study. Right. Then I give them a project. Um, and it depends on the level of the student and if there's something that I've been asked to concentrate on. But my default project is do what you want, mm -hmm. which always completely freaks them out. Yeah. Because they're used to being told what to do. Right, know. right. Now, don't mix orange with pink. Pink, do you? No, you no. don't mix blue with green. <laughs> don't mix serif with sans serif. You know, they want to learn things. Right. And here's me saying, do what you want. Mm -hmm. The first thing they do is panic. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know what I want. Um, 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 <laughs> so they spent two or three weeks just in a panic, doing nothing except panicking. And then because they have to think of something, they find an idea. So I tell them it doesn't matter where you start. You know, some of them come to me, hey, Paul, I've had an idea. Oh, really? Oh, how exciting. Yawn, yawn. Because I tell them ideas are two a penny. Any mm -hmm. fool, you know, yeah. not you, any fool can have an idea. It's the work that makes the idea good or bad, not the idea. Oh, really? Oh, all right. 
So what are you going to do with the idea? How are you going to start? So they have to go through a period of research, in mm -hmm. the folding research, material research. So if you fold it in fabric or metal or something, will it fall down? Is it strong enough? Mm -hmm. How can you support it? How can you lock it? How can you make it do this and this? So they have all these problems, technical and aesthetic, and slowly, you know, week by week, we work our way through them until in the end, often, they get a lovely piece of work out of it that's technically sophisticated and also works well in that material or with that manufacturing technique or making technique in that material. So mm -hmm. it kind of, you know, it kind of works in the end. So I'm mm -hmm. used to having this panic in the early weeks, these distraught students coming to me, you know, desperate for an idea. But in the end, because they have thought of the idea, they love their work. Yeah. <coughs> they identify with it, which is important, I think. Sure. Yeah. And do some of them continue in paper? Um, some of them do, yes. Yeah. Yes, I know that they use these techniques, not just in my project, but in other projects. Mm -hmm. It's quite common that they're doing other making projects and they'll take ideas from my workshop and put them into other projects. So some of the other projects are big projects that are worth four points. And mine is relatively small, worth two points. So what they do for me might be, okay, you know, pretty good but they do something phenomenal in the four point project because mm -hmm. it's four points, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, play the system. Um, right. So we talk about that as well. And I help them with that. And I know that, that they use them, you know, throughout. And also, well, it's a small country and I meet my students afterwards and Hey, Paul, Hey, Hey, want to tell you, I did this and that. And I did this and this, and I use that. And I use this. Many students continue to use those techniques. Yeah, I, that just made me think about graphic design and all of the three-dimensional graphic design things that have been done for years. I have a collection of books that I've, you know, on 3D graphic design. Um, so that must be an area as well. Yes, Perhaps. I mean, there's almost yeah. no area that's not yeah. relevant. Touched, I yeah. Mean, mm -hmm. You know, really. I mean, you can't think of a design discipline <clears throat> where people do not fold right yeah and even if you're building a brick wall you know you're designing a brick wall well what do you do you turn a corner with the wall and it's like a fold you know it right looks, but it's not made by folding you know but right right, it's right. A folded fold. yeah so yeah. part of my teaching is to say to the students just look around you and how many things can you see that either are folded or look like they could have been folded so we make these lists in the room and it's quite a long list when you really start to look at it mm -hmm. and it opens their eyes and makes them more aware mm -hmm. of how things are made and how things can be made, which you know, is part of my job as a you know, teacher. Um, so, yes, it's impossible to imagine a world <laughs> where yeah. it's not you know, relevant to designers. Yeah, and this makes me think of um, one of your books, one of your more recent books has some um, paper weaving in it. And I'm wondering if that was inspired by your connection to students and fashion. I've done quite a bit with paper weaving myself. I do a 
30-day challenge every year where I, we weave with a group of people and it's just amazing to see what comes out of that. Um, yeah, one of the, um, uh, the major threads of my teaching, I forgot to mention it, is textiles. I've taught mm -hmm. in the textiles department for many years. And one of the other uh, techniques they learn, of course, is weaving. Right. Um, with thread and with paper. So we end up doing some quite sophisticated you know, paper weaving in two dimensions and in three dimensions. Yeah. Um, some of the students really enjoy the mathematics and the pattern making of that. And other right. students just avoid it. You know, there's a, maybe you know this, there's a kind of, you know, design student who find themselves studying design because they hated mathematics at school. Mm -hmm. And anything to do with measuring or numbers, they just run away from, right. um, which is a bit of a pity in a sense, because a lot of design is around measuring and patterns and you know, basic calculations, but they hate that. <laughs> yeah. Silly, I think. But yeah, so not every student wants to weave, um, but you introduce them to it and you just tell them it's a pattern game. And oh, really? Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Under, over, under, under, over. Oh, yeah. Okay. I can get that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as soon as you start saying one and then two and then one and then three, they lose you, you know, because it's numbers, it's maths. Math, sorry. Yeah, I love math myself, but I cannot master that triaxial weave. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that is like, I've tried that several times, but I have found a lot of freedom in the paper weaving just by curving, doing curve lines. You, do, you can really break out of the math, as you're saying. Yes, I encourage the students to fail. Yeah. You know, I love it when the students come to me almost in tears holding mm -hmm. some wreck of a piece of work. It didn't work. You know, they spent a few hours on it and it failed because they pushed it too far or because they didn't understand something fundamental. Yeah. Um, so you talk about triaxial, you know, it's just understanding this 6020 geometry. They may not have understood that right. as a basic fact and started trying to weave 90s and 45s or something. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work. You know, the right. two languages don't easily mix. Right. But they haven't understood that for some right. reason. So you just point out the obvious and, oh, oh, yeah, all right, yeah. You know, and yes, and off they go and come back with something wonderful. Um, it's, it's amazing what you think is obvious and they haven't quite got it. Right, yeah. So a lot of my teaching is really basics. Mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. basics mm -hmm. it's almost like they're back at school because i've because i've learned over the years that you can't take anything for granted that if you assume something then there's always going to be a few students never really understand what you assume they've understood you have to say it you have to teach it yeah they get it right i remember teaching early on and trying to uh yeah, combine all of these things into one project. And then I finally realized, well, that's like a whole semester. You know, you, yeah, yeah, you have to yeah. break it down into the steps. Yeah. Yes, you have yeah. to do that, to break yeah. it down to separate exercises. Yeah. But much of the best work my students do, I mean, I tell them again and again, I am the origami geek. You know, I am the technical nerd who can make anything. You are a designer, mm -hmm. not just a you're a designer. 
So, so design something, uh, not make something technically extraordinary. Because what tends to happen is that if a student gets really deep into the technique, weaving or yeah. audience folding, whatever it is, whatever the technique is, if they get deeply, deeply into it, the design work suffers mm -hmm. because they just start thinking technique. Right. Not what am I making, but how am I making it? Mm -hmm. What and the why get forgotten about. Right. How? What happens if I tried it? What I'm, I mean, this is important, but it's yes. not become an obsession. So much of the best work my students do, in my opinion, is technically quite simple with mm -hmm. the folding, but it's done beautifully. It's done in the right material and it's done appropriately. Um, so I tell them that they don't have to make uh, some complicated you know, masterpiece that they've seen on Instagram or you know, Pinterest that always scares the hell out of them. You know, they don't need to do that. Right. That's what somebody else did. Um, yes, yeah, so doing research on, you know, now if they go to Google and just put origami into Google or something, you know, they all get the same answers and I just get a bit mad. Yeah. So I say, look, you know, go to page 50, have a look there. Don't just look at the first right. page. I think right. that's research. Right. You know, research is not finding what you like. You know, research is finding things that are useful to you. Mm -hmm. Oh. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Don't don't just make a I like this, you know, collection. Find a collection of things that are relevant to your project, even if you hate them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> I want to go back to your uh, publications because after that first folding for designers, you've done a whole series, and were those? I'm also intrigued by the fact that you. You, both of your publishing stories are similar to mine, where someone came to me, someone came to you, and then someone came with a proposal for a book. You said, no, I don't want to do that, but I want to do this. I kind of had the same thing. And so how did the other design books evolve after that first? Uh, well, they said to me after like a year or six months or something of folding techniques for designers, it was selling very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was in... I don't know, six or eight Bunch languages. There was yeah. a bidding war somewhere. They were uh -huh. amazed that yeah. book had done very well. So they kind of said to me, do you have any other ideas? Uh -huh. And I kind of thought, well, well, uh, yeah, I guess I do. So I had this, there are three books. I call them the grey books, a packaging book, pop-up book, and a book of kind of novelties, just weird things you can make in paper. Uh -huh. So we did those three books. Okay. And then... Um, uh, we did a book called Complete Pleats, which mm -hmm. I think is my best book, mm -hmm. but it looks a bit like folding techniques. None of the, well, you know, very few of the techniques are the same, but it looks the same aesthetically. So it didn't do terribly well in sales. Uh -huh. and I regret uh -huh. that because it's, um, in my opinion, a better book. Okay, well, that's it's good for my listeners to hear. Everybody go buy Complete Pleats. Yeah, yeah, Complete Pleats, I think, is a better book. And also yeah. it's got the work of about 60 designers in it, mm -hmm. all kinds yeah. of materials. Right. <clears throat> so it's all about pleating, you know, making zigzags and accordions. And right. It's, maybe that sounds boring, but actually pleating, when you begin to look at it, 
is really interesting. Really, oh, yeah. Really, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So it's got something like 200 techniques in it and all this work from other designers. But it never sold terribly well, which is mm. a bit of a problem. Um, yeah. And then I thought, well, I'm a bit bored by this. So I did a book on patterns, mm-hmm. uh, on repeat. Pa- how do you make a repeat pattern? Mm-hmm. Similarly. Because a lot of folding is about pattern making, symmetry, right? mirror symmetry, rotational symmetry, the four symmetries. And a, a friend of mine who's a kind of design professor in Germany, you know, sat me down one day with this book and said, um, Paul, does this make any sense to you? And it was a book of all the different ways you could create symmetry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yes, I understand. Yeah, I get that. Oh, this is, and I suddenly realized I understood most of this because mm-hmm. I'd been living in this world for many, many years, mm-hmm. making symmetrical folding patterns and never really understanding that, hey, I was a bit of an expert at this. Um, so I, I sort of wrote a book about it, but a visual book. Most of these patterns, when you look at them, are described as P1 plus P1, comma, P2. Well, what's that? But when you describe it visually, a designer who thinks visually can understand it and do something with it. So I kind of rethought these 17 patterns of symmetry, if I remember correctly, and wrote it as a visual guide for designers. So that's done okay. Uh, That's done all right for itself. Um, But it's not a paper folding book. Right. Uh, the latest project was a book of stars, three-dimensional stars, a kind of kit that I designed. Um, there's a star, the red star over my head. Uh-huh. That's one of them. Um, so it's a kind of Lego system. They're called superstars. Okay. And they came out just before lockdown. So they kind of, well, not disappeared into oblivion, but um, they didn't do as well as they should have done because of lockdown. But I'm actually rather proud of these. You can make thousands and thousands of different stars. Each of these units has three folds. But you can make this kind of galaxy of different stars with just a few pieces or many, many pieces. And is Um, it all the same unit or are there different units? No, it's the same unit, but you Uh can put them together many, many different ways. Okay. Uh, and the well, nobody's going to see this. We'll put yeah. uh, we'll put some photos in the show notes. Um, and this comes with paper, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. There are 108 yeah. units um, already colored, already cut. You just right. have to put three folds into them. And there's a little booklet and some videos as well that tell you how to lock them together. And you can make hundreds of different stars, and you can hang them up and you put them on your table, whatever. And they're quite big too. The one above me here is uh, probably a foot wide and it's 30 pieces. Um, so it's kind of a Sonobe unit, people who know origami. Mm-hmm. Ones, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but, it's, but it's reimagined as paper engineering, not as origami. So what takes you five minutes to fold, if you're making a Sonobe type unit, takes three seconds with these pieces that come in the kit. Um, and also, this is not a 45, 90 geometry. It's a 60 degree geometry, equilateral uh, geometry. Uh-huh. So it's a different geometry, but it's kind of a Sonobe concept. And it sounds like it'd be great for children and adults. 
Yeah. yeah I so remember. Well, I'm sorry. I just remember my son when he learned to fold something, the first thing, it was some little animal. And he immediately, he folded like a hundred of them in a row. He just really wanted to do that. So this would be more rewarding because you yeah. put them together in different ways. Yeah. 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 There really are, you know, many, many, many ways. I spent six months in the studio here just, oh, we can make that one. Oh, you can do this. Oh, you can do that. Just discovering all these weird and beautiful things you could make. And the best ones went into the videos and, and into the booklet. Yeah. Cool. Um, I could ask you many more questions, but I want to wrap up. And I think I'll ask you about the folding together project. I, I'm, I plan on interviewing Miri, your wife at a, a later date, but I'd like to get your perspective on that and then I'll get hers. Okay. Um, this was a project. Miri was born in Jerusalem mm -hmm. and grew up um, in a mixed um, Jewish Arab kind of neighborhood. She's mm -hmm. Jewish herself. I'm mm -hmm. not, you know, um, so I'm kind of neutral in all this. <clears throat> and um, in the early 2000s, there was a lot of conflict, bus bombings and all kinds of things. Yeah. It was a difficult time. It was quite a dangerous time. And that's when you moved there, and right? we had this, yeah, that's when I moved here. Yes, yeah. I moved here in 2000, 2001. Right. Um, and she had this idea to bring the kids together, educate the kids, not the parents, the kids. Right, right. So we went to the Japanese embassy here, who we know, we work with them, and they have a fund from the foreign ministry, Japanese foreign ministry. So they supported this folding together idea, and they gave us um, $80,000, quite a lot of money, mm -hmm. especially 15 years ago, that we yeah. ran a... So we ran a year-long project with it in Jerusalem on the border between East and West Jerusalem, you know, kind of symbolic. You know, yeah. border, where we had children from a very right-wing area that were having, you know, missiles and, you know, rifle shots coming into their neighborhood from East Jerusalem um, and a Palestinian and Arab school. And we brought these kids together um, uh, for 12 lessons and there were four of these courses for 12 lessons so 40 50 kind of lessons in the end you know one a week yeah um so we had you know arab teachers we had miri we had me as the neutral so we went and we did and we did origami with them but we didn't just kind of teach and go mm -hmm. we got the kids you know sitting you know, Jewish, Palestinian, Jewish, blah, 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 you know, all the way around the room, about 30 of them. And at first they were terrified of each other. They don't meet. They don't right. know each other. Right. And by the end, it was arms around each other, my best friend. And it was very moving. Yeah. So this is what we did. We just taught them origami. We did not ask them, what do you think about the conflict? Right. We just taught origami as a way to bring them together, as a neutral art. Mm -hmm. It's Japanese. Mm -hmm. We kept pushing the Japanese mm -hmm. here. And there'd be people coming from the embassy who were Japanese and looked different and wow. We had a film crew come from NHK television. NHK mm -hmm. are the main broadcaster, public broadcaster in Japan. Um, and they came with their Jerusalem film crew because they had a crew stationed permanently in Jerusalem because of all the mess that was going yeah. on. Mm -hmm. So these 
so these guys came around as sort of a camera guy, sound guy, and a reporter, three guys. And they were filming in the class and they disappeared. We didn't know where they'd gone. It was a bit odd. So we said, where have they all, where have they all gone? So we went into the corridor. And they were all facing the wall. I get quite emotional here, so Aww. excuse me if I don't, you know, continue in a straight line. They're all facing the wall, crying. Aww. So we said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they said to us that you know, they'd been there two years. They'd been to all the terrible things that yeah. had happened. You know, yeah. you know, unimaginable horror, you know, with the bombings. They said it was the first positive story in two years. Mm. Mm. And because it was Japanese, you know, this really hit them, you know? Yeah. Um, so we did all these projects. We did four of them. It became, well, the problem was it was incredibly successful. That was the problem in a sense that the schools loved it. The kids loved each other by the end. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. You know, kids are kids. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. uh, 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 you look into each other's eyes and you've got a friend. Right. This is what we learned. Yeah. And they loved that origami. They taught it to their friends at school. All the school wanted to come. Mm -hmm. you know, we couldn't take them, you know, but they all wanted to come. Both, both sets of kids and their brothers and sisters. We started doing classes for parents mm -hmm. who wanted to do origami from the two sides. It's amazing. Oh, they never yeah. meet each other. They wanted. They understood that this was a good thing. Yeah. Um, and we did exhibitions and stuff. And then people began to hear about this. And it got, got some kind of publicity in places like the UN. And we thought, hey, we're on the road here for you know, serious funding you know, for the UN, for whatever. You yeah. know, because there are so many UN-funded projects here right. that, frankly, were garbage, but they were well-funded. Mm -hmm. um, and our little origami thing was, you know, really working well. So um, we never got any money mm. because people were laughing. Yeah, do what they, they teach origami. What's that? What? They do what? They didn't take it seriously. Hmm. But of all the projects that were started at that time, ours was the only one to continue. Everything else with money failed. Hmm. You know, football gets money. Oh, because you can imagine, you know, soccer, yeah. you know, gets yeah. money. Okay, two teams, yeah, you know, play together. Orchestras, fantastic. Dance, okay. Um, you know, you get the idea in a sentence, but what is origami? Why was it successful? And it was successful because of Miri. Mm -hmm. She knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. She knew how to get the kids, to get them engaged, to get them involved, to speak to them, to make them friends. You know, any problems were immediately dealt with. Um, you know, any kind of disrespect, you know, they were pulled in front of the group. Why are you being disrespected? She would deal with it. Uh, and after that, everybody was a friend. It was a remarkable project. Wow. Um, but then our son was born. Well, he was quite young. Well, he was already born, but I mean, he was young and he yeah. got older and we became more involved in education, the Origometria project. And, uh, and we couldn't continue. Yeah. And we just couldn't do it. And also the emotional energy was just too much. But it was quite something. There is a website 
mm-hmm. um, foldingtogether.org. Okay. Foldingtogether.org. There's a lot of text there that I wrote you know, each week and photos and stuff. It's a kind of archive site. Yeah. Probably nobody ever visits there now, but if anybody is interested. Yeah, I'll uh, list that. Yeah. I mean, now I don't think we could do it. The relationships here are not really very good. Uh, so I don't think we could get schools to participate and parents to agree. 15 years ago, we could, but not now. Um, don't think so anyway. Well, but you did make an impression on that group of children for sure. Yeah, and, and the legacy yeah. of that is we teach in a lot of Palestinian schools. The Oregometria problem, problem project that deals with this you know, problem of geometry in schools. We teach origami as part of the maths curriculum here. Um, right. We work in 600 schools. Wow. Um, and quite a lot of those are Arab schools and we teach in Arabic. It's an online the platform. So okay. we have 130,000 children teach, taught origometria every week. It's part of the national curriculum. Paper, yeah. paper folding is part of the national curriculum. This is one of the legacies of folding together. Can you imagine? Wow. Origami is part of the national curriculum for mathematics. 130,000 children a week study it. And we are so proud of that. That is amazing. Has there been interest from other countries? We're beginning Uh, to expand it. The problem with that is kind of payments. How do people pay things? How do you get money? How do you process this? How do you stop people stealing your material? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we need, we're just about to rebuild the site with fantastic, you know, state of the art Mossad security systems, you know, <laughs> Israeli intelligence kind of, you know, <laughs> unbreakable oh, wow. system. Um, so we can, as we can sell it overseas, we have had interest. So, right. so now we need to build the site to make it possible. Right, right. Okay, well, I wanted to get to your recommendations and you had a couple of books you wanted to recommend. Um, the Akira Yoshizawa book. Yes, it's a Tuttle book, which is a combination of four or five, I think, of his original books that he wrote himself that are perhaps still in print in Japanese, but not in English. So Yoshizawa Sensei, teacher, um, was the founding genius, I guess we can say, of contemporary creative origami. Um, And I had the privilege to meet him several times. Um, uh, that, uh, that's including in his studio in Tokyo. Mm. Very memorable occasion. As you mm-hmm. might know. He was a genius. He made, I think he showed us you could make a living with origami. He was the person who said this is a way of life. It's uh-huh. what you can do in your life more than a hobby, more than a pastime, more than something you do for a bit of fun. You can live it and breathe it. Mm-hmm. And make success of it. He was my inspiration. Mm-hmm. And the models that he made, they're animals and flowers and so on, were relatively simple by today's standards, but there's so much expression in them. Mm-hmm. They're beautifully alive. They're not just a kind of mechanical, geometric you know, representation. And he did the wet folding, correct? Yes, yes. they're wet okay. yeah. Most of them are wet folding. Mm-hmm. Um, a very, very remarkable man. 
Um, so I recommend that book. It's a mm -hmm. beautiful book. It's kind of the best of Yoshizawa Sensei. Okay. And then uh, Tomoko Fuse's book. Tomoko is a friend of mine. Um, she's the person who popularized unit origami, modular origami, back in the 80s and 90s. Again, it's somebody I've met many times. She's been to Israel twice. Mm -hmm. Last year, I organized an exhibition of hers at the Ticketing Museum here in Haifa. Big installation. So she changed from doing the modular work to kind of installation pieces and big fine art pieces. Um, so again, this is a total book and it's really a catalogue. There's not much text in it, but it's an extraordinary, beautiful, beautiful book of mind blowing paper tessellations, paper pleating, huge installations in big galleries, absolutely amazing book um and tomoko i have a great affection for as we all have she's a lovely 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 lady such a sweetheart and um, the title of the book title well she hates the title she kind of disowned the book tomoko would say queen of origami she hates that so oh. i feel for her yeah it's not the title she would have chosen yeah maybe it sells books and gets her name right, known, but she right. doesn't like the title. <laughs> so I understand. Um, but yes, I do recommend the book. So the two books together, big advert for Tuttle here. Yeah. Um, yeah yes, I. Um, so together they show the two sides. I think the abstract side, the art side, and the kind of you know traditional model making side. And if you put the two together, you yeah. get a good sense of the span of origami. You know, right. Hold. Right, wonderful. Okay, and what last question? Um, what are you working on right now? Do you have some creative pursuits or? Yeah, uh, coming out of lockdown um, mm -hmm. here in Israel, we're pretty much back to normal without masks. Okay. Places are open, so it's been lockdown time. Um, well, I'm working on the update for folding techniques for designers. <clears throat> I'm finishing a book for China that I'll talk about when we do it. Mm -hmm. um, I've just done some work i can't really talk about it but maybe by the time <laughs> this goes out i can give you all the details it's an oh. interior design idea uh -huh. for somebody in the u.s and everybody's getting really really excited about this um it's not my idea but somebody came to me paul can you design something it's a kind of aspect of interior design and oh. the people who've seen the prototypes are going crazy about them you know the specifiers the people who tell the hotels and the conference centers what to buy are going right. nuts for these prototypes so i'm told so maybe you know when i can release the information i'll tell you so i've been working on that oh, uh -huh. um, and there's lots of projects with miri that we're doing the origometria is growing we're doing some work we might be moving the origami center to somewhere else maybe okay. maybe we're always full of ideas and possibilities and many of them fall um, and one or two of them happen, but you never know till you get there. So right. you know, we have this kind of busy life with lots of ideas and <laughs> lots of heartache along the way. But, you know, you keep making a living. You keep showing up, you know, to use that phrase again. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's another year, another year. And you know, here we are, you know, many years later and we're still doing it. Yeah, well, what a treat to have you on, Paul. And you've certainly contributed 
to the world of paper and beyond in so many ways. So thanks for sharing your story. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I mean, I don't often talk about myself like this. Of course, I'm my favorite subject. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's uh, to, oh, yeah. And let's say um, where we can find you online. Yes, uh, online. Yeah, do you want to say it or do you want me to say it? <laughs> you can say it. Oh, okay. I have a website, origami-artist.com. I'm very proud of the hyphen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a Facebook page, which Miri opened and then oh, I'm not interested anymore. So I kind of took it over. So it has her name. So it's facebook.com slash Miri, uh, uh, M-I-R-I dot Golan, G-O-L-A-N, Miri dot Golan. And that's our Facebook page. And I make a post every three, four, five days. So there's no photos of my lunch or me in the pub with my mates. It's all origami. Yeah, and you share lots of tutorials and it's very uh, uh, informative and educational. Yeah, thanks for that. Okay, well, we'll talk to you again. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. That was fun. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list, to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at helenhebertstudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Reason.